Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with veteran jazz saxophonist and clarinetist David Murray. While on tour in Montreal, he opened up about his life, growing up in Oakland, and then arriving in New York as a 20-year-old student back in 1975. And things have been on the up and up ever since. Amongst so many things, he is the founding member of the World Saxophone Quartet and is contributing to the rise of young talents like Lafayette Gilchrist. He's got a great future ahead of him. He's had a great past and with much more music to come. So dig this interview, my friends. What's been going on? I know you said you're in Montreal and you're on tour now, but give me kind of a snapshot of what's going on with you lately. Well, um, yeah, I'm, I'm on tour with Cahill Wells a Bar, and um, uh, we're, we're, uh, just, we're just leaving Ottawa. We played last night at the Mercury Lounge, and we're on our way to a place in Toronto and then on to Detroit and Pittsburgh and Chicago. Uh, after which I'll probably uh, go to New York for for a day, a day and a half, two days, and then go to uh, on vacation uh, for the Paris and go on vacation to uh, Cines, Portugal, where we have a house there on the Atlantic and be with my family there um, and my kids and uh, really uh, have a chance to uh, just relax. And uh, Actually, I'm in the process of uh, writing a book, so I... In the next few days, I have to finish the chapter on on the conductor, Butch Morris. So that's kind of what I'm doing with that. I have an editor, Paul Devlin, and uh, we're working vigorously to try to get it to uh, the book company uh, through the agent. So uh, it's kind of in, it's in the process right now. There are things that are coming up for me at the Winter Jazz Festival. I'm going to, on the 6th, um, at the New School, we're going to present... Uh, um, the group I have with my son, Mingus Murray, on guitar and uh, and a bass player and piano player, a Lafayette Gilchrist, and probably a Rashad Carter and his brother Russell. We're going to play uh, uh, with the Winter Jazz Festival. That's going to be my presentation. And um, I think uh, the big band is going to start up real soon at, uh, at one of the clubs in New York. I'm not going to mention that yet because it's not completely nailed down, but uh, my big band will be coming up and I'll probably do uh two uh two nights uh in every month at the at at a at a, at a well known club. I'll be playing the Vanguard in May the second through the seventh. Um there's, there's various gigs with the trio, uh, with the uh MCA trio with Power Trio with uh Jerry Allen and Terry Lynn Carrington. Uh we just came back from London. Um we were on the cover of Jazz Wise. That was quite nice and then we played at the Jazz Dior in uh, Strasbourg. Um, there are things happening. I'm trying to develop myself back, establish myself back in New York City. I'm sure the big band excitement will, will help. And there are a lot of young musicians coming around knowing that I'm going to be doing things. And um, it's nice that, that people accept me um, back as uh, some kind of a, I don't know, it's not like when I came to New York the first time you know, 40 years ago. But now I, I got a little reputation, and um, it's, it's 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 nice to to uh, that people realize that that I have a long track record. I've done over 200 albums, and uh, you know people recognize that of me, and they expect a lot too. I, I mean, I I can't go on stage uh, on crutches or falling down. I mean, I, I have, when I present myself, I have to make a good showing. We did a beautiful presentation um well i thought it was beautiful uh at the uh at the uh atrium at lincoln center um uh, with the with my cuban ensemble playing 
uh, Nat King Cole in Espanol. Uh, that was quite nice, and people accepted that. It was it was capacity, and um, people enjoyed it. I mean, that's that's something I I hadn't anticipated doing that, but the guy wanted some kind of a Spanish project, and he actually mentioned something with Kip Hanrahan, and I really just the last time we were together with one of Kip's projects, it was a big fiasco when. Sicily, so I didn't. I wanted to have more control, so I did the Nat King Cole. I kind of brought it out of, brought it out of my hat from the past, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me ask you this: How does a kid from Oakland grow up to have so much clout in the world of jazz, 200 plus albums, and all the accomplishments you've made? How did that happen? Well, you know, when I went out, when I came out to, to New York, it was in '75. You know, I, I, it was the second semester of of my sophomore year. I went to do an independent study through my, through the head of the music department, Dr. Russell, and um, Bobby Bradford, who was teaching there at Pomona, and also Stanley Crouch, the writer. He was one of my professors. And we made up, I made up my own uh, kind of a study, an independent study on the saxophone, on the saxophone since 1958. Since, uh, since, uh, Post Arnett kind of a study that would uh, send me to New York, uh, and, and a lot of that is important right now because some of the notes that I have are very relevant for the beginning of my book that I'm putting together now. So I went to concerts, I interviewed people, I interviewed uh, Cecil Taylor, McCoy Tyner, John Cage, um, you know, and uh, people of that ilk, uh, Arnett Coleman. Um, it was very, it was very big. Your main influences were Albert Ayler and Archie Shepp. What was it about their playing that influenced you so much? Well, I wouldn't say that. Um, I, you said that, but okay. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, I, I wouldn't say what you just said. But those, those two guys you mentioned are certainly d- down on my list. My, my favorite influences for myself, if I were to, to speak for myself, I would say uh, Paul Gonzalez. Sonny Rollins, uh, people of that ilk, you know, oh, Lester Young, um, definitely Sonny Rollins, um, people like Dexter Gordon, Johnny Griffin. Then we get into the Archie Sheps and the Albert Iris. You, you have to understand, like when I was a young man growing up, and, I, and, I, and also I forgot to mention Coleman Hawkins and Ben Webster. I mean, that's those are the guys that I really studied as far as, you know, like a trying to be a, you know, kids today, they have an opportunity to to major in John Coltrane or, or, or maybe the solos are readily available back in the 70s. I mean, we, we used to have to transcribe our own solos, you know. We used to have records that we could put back to 16 and a half and play an octave lower and learn the solo, then speed it up and play along with the record, and at the same time, transcribe it. Now all you got to do is press a little button on the computer, and it'll come right up. So we had to work a little harder, but the, but the uh, to learn the solo verbatim from, from a record is a, a lot more challenging than just reading it and learning and memorizing in that way. That way you get all of the nuances of the, uh, the sounds of... Uh, of what these people were putting down. I mean, you, you get the breath inside of factors. Ben Wester, if you were to watch him play on a video, what you would see was that 
there's a sound of air that comes even before the note. So that's part of the note, the, the sound of the air and its expression. So um, all those kind of idiomatic nuances are very, very important uh, to learn how to play, not just to, not just to ape somebody, but just to find out what kind of techniques that these people are developing in their individual time, you know. It took years and years for for Ben Westry to figure out how to make that fit at the bottom of the horn sound like an effect, <laughs> you know. Yeah, sure. Well, what have you done specifically over your career to evolve and to evolve your sound and who you are as a musician? Well, you know, um, listening to Rossan Roland Kirk when I was 15 and 16 at the you know, in San Francisco at the, uh, at the uh, what was that called, Keystone Corner. Hearing him play two saxophones and two penny whistles and maybe three saxophones that involved at one time, watching him, watching him extend the art of circular breathing, that was a big influence on me. And, and watching Sonny Rollins when I was 11 playing solo at the Berkeley Jazz Festival, I came home and I, I told my father, you know, this alto saxophone I, that I have that we, that we got from school is really nice, but this guy named Sonny Rollins had a tenor, and it, it, it was just so much bigger, and it had so much, many more different kinds of sounds in it, and I had to have one. He, he took me to the credit union, and uh, and I joined the credit union, took out a loan for 700 bucks, and the next day I had a, 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 a brand-new Selma 1964 tenor saxophone, and... Uh, it would be it would be with me today had my second wife not threw it out the window. Let me ask you a question about the World Saxophone Quartet. You were a founding member. What did it mean to form that band, and what what are your? How did it feel to be in that band? At the beginning, when we started, this is our 40th year. We're selling made it now. Um, we lost Julius Hemphill in 1995, but he had severed from the group a few years before that because, uh, well, Julius was was just. Uh, he was a genius, and uh, with genius comes a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, other things too, is what I could say. So he was actually out of the group before he died, but uh, he was. Uh, it was hard to watch somebody kill himself, you know. Um, he lost one of his legs, but he was one of the primary writers for the World Saxophone Quartet, going and playing. The, the, the band actually started in New Orleans. There's a guy, great guy named Kid Jordan. Uh, Ed Kid Jordan, who plays the tenor, and he, he teaches down at the, the Southern University. And his, uh, his, his uh, brother-in-law, Albert Baptiste, the great clarinet player, he just passed away a few years ago, and we were also in a group with the clarinet summit uh, with uh, Jimmy Hamilton from New Bellington, you know, Creole Love Call and all that. Um, and uh, John Carter, you know, people like that. So... The World Saxophone Quartet is kind of like the, we, at the time that we started in 76, um, there weren't many people like that. There were some classical groups. In fact, at first we called ourselves, we found out there was a classical group called the, the, the New York Saxophone Quartet. They were a classically trained group and they, they had the same instrumentation. And so we called ourselves uh, the real New York Saxophone Quartet, of course. We got a letter from their lawyer to cease and desist, and at that point, we decided to become the World Saxophone Quartet. That's what we've been rolling under that, under that uh, 
under that nomenclature since then. So um, the individuals in the group, I think, we were quite, we were all pretty popular in the, the advent of uh, of loft jazz during that time. A lot of people, in fact, all of the members besides myself, they were all from St. Louis. They had grown up um, in this black artist group that they have there. Uh, in fact, Julius was actually from Fort Worth, Texas, because he's a distant cousin of Barnett Coleman. But he, after he got out the service, he 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 um he started his family in St. Louis, and so he's basically from St. Louis too. So they're all from St. Louis, and we all met up in New York. And uh, people used to put us together. Uh, I think we were, we were probably four of the more popular saxophonists in that loft jazz experiment, and I just happened to be a little younger than them. It didn't really make a difference then, you know, that I was 15 years younger than everybody, but now it does. You know, I'm, I'm almost 62, and they're, they're both, they're, the blue is getting up there. Julius is gone. Oliver's is healthy. Uh, Blewett, Blewett is having a few difficulties, but he'll be back. And, uh, you know, and once he gets back, we're going to continue on. And maybe we'll, uh, we'll have another 40 years. Beautiful. Speaking of that, when you look back on your career right now, 150-plus albums, you've been all over the world, how do you feel about what you've done? How, how, do, how do you feel about your career and your mark on jazz? Well, you know, um, actually, this is the first time in my life that I've actually even had an opportunity to review some of the things that I've done. Um, because up until this point, I was happy to make a record, and I listened to the music very intently, and then I go in a few months later and then listen, you know, listen very intently for two or three months, and then go in the studio and then mix the thing. And then after I mixed it, it wasn't—it was almost like it wasn't mine anymore. It was—it belonged to the rest of the world, and I—I uh, I really I avoided listening to my music. Now that I'm getting gotten a little older, maybe it's time to review some of these things and see which things were good. I mean, I thought I personally thought everything that I did was good. Um, obviously, obviously, nobody can be perfect, and uh, I, I was in, in hindsight, I, I was not perfect either. But my objective was to be as as connected and as I mean, I followed every I followed every recording I did all the way up to the mastering. You know, I was involved with every note and every bar and measure of, of my music and. Uh, I didn't want my music to be controlled by others. There's only a few albums that were my, I think maybe I lost control of my own music, but those albums are popular because they were done uh, uh, under the uh, under the uh, producer Bob Thiel, you know, who also produced Love Supreme by John Coltrane. So I was the last guy that he produced, and that's a well-documented. Uh, he took me to Columbia Records, he took me away from Columbia Records and started Red Barrett, and I, I did several recordings, many recordings with him that were very popular, uh, including a recording um, that was uh, actually produced. I called him to produce one recording when I was with a Japanese company, DIW, uh, on which I've done. I had recorded 30 albums with DIW, which is a Japanese label, Tokyo, uh, and I produced another 50 more with other people but um, 
those, the ones, the things like, for instance, we did a one album called Jazz and So Is Rex. I'm, I'm not particularly proud of that. He brought in this arranger named Abe Osserman, whose his claim to fame was he would score the music to Miss America pageants. And I had to work with people that was really not really in my sphere of people, but they were professionals. Um, Buddy Tate um, was uh, one guy that I I had, uh, I guess, a chance to work with, uh, with uh, Bob Bill's wife, uh, Teresa Brewer. We did an album together, Softly I Swing. I'm not particularly proud of that album either, but, you know, um, that was, that was because of uh, because I had lost control of of my own music and was trying to move in a more commercial kind of uh, um, stratosphere. Um, I'm not particularly proud of that, but other than that, uh, all the albums that I did, my heart was certainly into it, and I, I was trying my best is what I could say. So let me ask you a generic question. Why do you love jazz? You've dedicated your life to it. I think it's loved you as much as you've loved it. So why do you love it? Well, jazz is, a, to me, is a, probably a very ecumenical kind of a music. I mean, jazz allows people, like I know, I know people that live on different continents, people that live in Japan, Australia, people live in Europe and Africa, all over the world. And they, they raised their three or four kids on jazz. I mean, they might not have make a living like a Wall Street businessman, but there are actually people that that eat, eat, eat because of jazz. And so, I mean, jazz allows, the umbrella of jazz allows all comers. Um, I can't say that about classical music because in certain societies, it's very difficult for certain people to join the classical uh, realm of uh, and, and play and, and, and be allowed to to make a, a, a income or raise a family from this kind of music. It's just not something. I don't know if it's uh, I don't know if it's cultural or if it's racial. I'm not quite sure. I don't want to I don't want to claim to either one, but it's impossible. But nearly, um, had I been a a cello player from Austria, it probably, I'd probably, you know, be very good at the orchestra, but, you know, I'm a saxophone player from Berkeley, um, and uh, Daz has allowed me to, to have a career, and I'm very grateful, and I think everybody should be grateful. I, I mean, jazz is a music that's created from the, from the sons and daughters of grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren of slaves. So we welcome everyone into our music, black, white, Asian, Oriental, everyone, African. So I think everybody should really just put their hands together and just say thank you, Jazz. I agree, absolutely. My final question to you is this. Everyone has a version of who you are, your family, your friends, those that you play live for. But when you wake up and face today, who are you? David Keith Murray, son of Walter, son of Catherine, um, son of son of grandson of of Gus Hackett, who was a sharecropper, and uh, that's who I am. I came out of I come out of the Church of God in Christ, Pentecostal music, Holy Roller, whatever you want to call it, 
I learned music in school. I learned music in the street. I learned music in church. Um, um, my my life, my people around me, my teachers, the great people that I was happy, I was fortunate enough to be around. They were older than me. I was fortunate enough to play with great people like John Hicks, Ray Drummond, uh, Max Roach, um, great great people, Dexter Gordon, Johnny Griffin. You know, uh, I'm I'm kind of like a Ornette Coleman. I'm, I mean, I'm I'm kind of like a a link in the chain. And it, as far as the tenor saxophone is concerned, you mentioned Archie Sheffield, you mentioned Albert Island. I never knew Albert Island, but I appreciate Albert Island. I never studied him, but I listened very intently to him. And I I, I played alongside Archie Sheffield many times. Um, I think. The saxophone, the tenor saxophone, would be a different story had I not come along. And uh, I think that people are influenced by me just as I was influenced by people before me. So, if there's no David Murray or Archie Sheff or Albert Eiler, the chain is broken. So I'm part of that chain, and I'm I'm just as relevant as anybody else. Beautiful. I like that answer. It's a great way to wrap everything up. David, thank you for reaching out, getting back with me. Thank you for your music okay. and your story. I appreciate it. Oh, you're very good at what you do. I can see that. Come up to me and say hello. You come to the Winter Jazz Festival? I need to. I need to come up and shake your hand. Yeah, I will I will make it a point for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come and say hi to me and my son, Mingus, will be there. I'm waiting to say hi to you. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to David for his honesty and his stories. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com or, for all things Neon Jazz, the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.